We have a treat today at Disciple Dojo. I got to spend the afternoon, a couple hours, sitting and talking with one of my old professors. This is the man who taught me uh, Greek text criticism, New Testament interpretation, and more specifically, this is who taught me the bulk of what I know about the book of Revelation, um, certainly who inspired me in my study of Revelation, apocalyptic, eschatology, and just biblical theology in general. Dr. Sean McDonough, New Testament professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary up in South Hamilton. We got to sit and talk about all kinds of things. Uh, he's got a new book out, The Preacher's Greek Companion to Philippians. There are a number of these coming out. His volume is on Philippians, but he and I believe Jonathan Klein are the editors of this, different contributors on different New Testament books. But it walks you through the Greek text, in this case of Philippians, section by section, lays out the text, gives some grammatical points, but specifically then gives some preaching points. So the whole goal is of this series is to take the academic, the biblical, the grammatical, and show what difference it makes, why it matters. And, and these volumes in particular are for preachers, people who week in and week out are teaching the text. And maybe since seminary, their languages have slipped, or maybe they're just not as confident that their languages are what they need to be in order to authoritatively teach and preach from scripture. So this resource is intended to kind of bridge that gap. It's not a commentary, but it's also not a boring grammar work. It's, it's a companion. It's like having a Greek tutor to the book of Philippians whispering over your shoulder. Hey, pay attention to this. Note how Paul's doing this. It's really good. I've only read through the first chapter so far, but what I have read has been great. So we talked a little bit about that at the end, but the bulk of our conversation was about apocalyptic and revelation, not just the book of revelation, but God's revelation to us through the world around us, creation, imagination. Dr. McDonough is a Tolkien aficionado. And so I asked him his thoughts on the Lord of the Rings movies and the Hobbit and the Rings of Power. And we talked about how imagination is so crucial for Christians and how books like Revelation and other apocalyptic parts of scripture speak to that aspect rather than to our mental cognitive ability. It was a great discussion. And so before we jump into it, if you haven't already, please, we would ask you to subscribe to this channel and to click the notifications icon. Another thing that really helps us out is financial support. And there are a couple of ways you can do that. Disciple Dojo is entirely nonprofit. We rely on donations. So if you enjoy this interview and other things you see here on the channel and you want to help us out, that would be incredibly helpful. And you can do that at the link here on your screen. Lastly, you can check out our Disciple Dojo store. I'm wearing our sweatshirt, Worthy is the Lamb. This is actually a passage from Revelation. We talk about this in the interview with Dr. McDonough. If you want to get one of these for yourself, or you want this on a t-shirt, or you want a coffee mug that tells you the whole Old Testament timeline, so while you're sipping your tea and doing your morning devotional, you can see the meta-narrative of the Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures, we have stuff like this and other Bible nerdy gifts here at the Disciple Dojo online store. So check those out. But with that out of the way, let's talk to Dr. Sean McDonough. So we're here today with Professor Sean McDonough, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. He doesn't 
No, but he is largely responsible for Disciple Dojo. He was one of my professors. I had him for, I believe, two classes in my time at Gordon Conwell and Hamilton and has been a very strong influence on not just uh, how I look at the book of Revelation, which is a course I took with him, but New Testament studies and biblical theology in general. So I was really excited. We've stayed connected over the years through Facebook uh, and touch base from time to time. But this is the first time that we've had him able to step into the dojo. And so, Dr. McDonough, I'm glad you're here. Uh, wanted to have you on for quite a while, ever since we started doing these interviews. So thanks for coming on today. No, it's my pleasure. I was I was thinking, as you say, step into the dojo, that you really need a theme song. Right. And I'm, I'm thinking that something kind of an 80s metal, Guns and Roses, <laughs> step into the dojo. Yes. I've been thinking I, about that. You invited. So I'm sure you or your readers could come up with something appropriate. <laughs> you don't need the whole song. You really could just... Get that step into the dojo yes. with guitars. Uh, just a, a metal riff and, uh, yeah, and just, a training montage just, to put over yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, just a, a snippet, a snippet and uh, see see how it goes. That'd be perfect. Jojo, dojo viewers, get on it out there in yeah. YouTube land. Throw, <laughs> send your best efforts for that. Uh, it's No, it is really cool having you on. And, and I have, so everybody who's taken Disciple Dojo's Revelation course, we have a video course that we teach and we offer it for free called uh, Revelation, A Guided Tour of the Apocalypse. And that course, um, probably 85% of that course is, was gleaned from your class 20 years ago, 19 mm. years, 19 or 20 years ago, which is wild when I think about it. But it's it's really had an impact um, in in the ministry of Disciple Dojo, because so much of what we did, especially in our early years when this um, before we even had a YouTube channel, was based on teaching in particular eschatology and interpreting revelation and apocalyptic. And that all traces a line back to you, which of course, then you would trace it back to those right. who poured into yeah. you as well. So Disciple Dojo is continuing outside the halls of academia, continuing the legacy of uh, Dr. Sean McDonough. So you, you are a big influence on this channel. And, and, and we connected when I was a student, some people, I, I never have really gone into my background in these interviews because want to hear people want to hear other people's stories but just for anybody wondering I did my first two years at uh, Gordon Conwell in South Hamilton and after two years I transferred down to finish at our Charlotte campus and there were a couple of reasons for that but I had you for two classes I had you for exegesis of revelation which we're going to talk a little bit about and then I had you for New Testament interpretation and so, Dojo viewers, we had Christopher Dostone recently to talk about Old Testament text criticism. Well, this episode, we have the man who taught me New Testament text criticism here. So we're kind of coming full circle and I'm excited having it. But tell, tell me, I actually tell the viewers, you teach at Gordon-Conwell, you're up in South Hamilton. Uh, what's, what's that like? What is the day-to-day -day life of a professor of biblical studies at Gordon Conwell. Yeah, it, it might not be the uh, scintillating action-packed <laughs> thing that probably most of you are imagining. Uh, I often think I'd be a 
good competitor for most boring person in the world. So, um, you know, the, on the days I'm teaching nowadays, we typically have a three hour course. And um, on those days, uh, as I get older, you teach for three hours. It's kind of hard to get much uh, mental acuity up for, for anything after that. And then Wednesdays, it's a lot of meetings and you're meeting with students and then um, a lot of time a discretionary time, which I spend uh, reading about various things. Um, mostly the last 10 years, it's been in the the realm of theology more than anything else and philosophy. Mm-hmm. So currently doing a lot of reading in the uh, German, uh, well, Austrian philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein and uh, Danish uh, theologian thinker Søren Kierkegaard. Mm-hmm. Uh, just issues concerning how we know what we know, what do we know, that that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I does spend that, a lot of time reading that. Does that, uh, has that over this past decade or so that you've gone that route, has, have you been teaching in courses on any of the philosophical or kind of getting away from biblical studies courses and into philosophy teaching? No, I, I, happily uh, still teaching the biblical study stuff. I did teach um, when Dr. Vidu, Adonis Vidu, my colleague, was uh, out. I did teach a, a course in hermeneutics and got to professionally indulge um, that. But the um, philosophical stuff is mostly related to hermeneutics and particularly hermeneutics of apocalyptic, which I, I finished a manuscript waiting to get published on uh, why apocalyptic is the way it is, right? Why communicate through strange images and visions mm-hmm. when your message is basically the same, Jesus is Lord, maintain your faithful witness, etc. If that's the case, why wouldn't you just do that through what we, at least in American Protestantism, think of, of more conventional linguistic means, just explain it to people. What's the value add of uh, images which tend to just confuse people. Um, And so that's that's one direction that the philosophical theological studies have helped me think through the kind of deeper rationale for why the book of Revelation is what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also helps in issues um, related to the integration of theology and scripture, like um, so-called issue of justification, which we perhaps touch mm-hmm. upon, if you like, uh, that, that there are often a lot of theological and philosophical questions lying under the surface of what are ostensibly just biblical discussions. Um, but really, if you get a little bit of self-awareness, you'll see it's not simply a matter of, I interpret the Bible this way and you think it means this. There are broader issues at play that need to be examined. And so spent a lot of time the last 10 years specifically related to the issue of justification and the issues surrounding the interpretation of revelation uh-huh. and trying to dig at the theological or philosophical components of those um, rather than a naive sense that I'm just interpreting the Bible uh, in in some kind of pristine state that's yeah. that's atheological and has no pre-commitments or anything that that I'm, mm-hmm. it's just presenting itself to me. So is there anybody else out there doing similar work, kind of the integration between philosophical underpinnings and how we approach scripture from specifically, are there any other biblical scholar trained uh, researchers out there doing this? Or are you kind of cutting a new path? Oh, no, I'm I'm sure there are tons of them. I I mean, probably the most noteworthy is Francis Watson, 
in Britain who's always uh, been well aware of the uh, hermeneutical concerns. Anthony Thistleton's another mm-hmm. one who has what I think is probably the greatest single commentary on any book of the Bible ever written, his First Corinthians commentary. Corinthians. He's, he's very yeah, hermeneutically, yeah, he's very hermeneutically aware um, and, and yet also uh, massively learned historically. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have somebody like Richard Bauckham who uh, m- more pointedly in the integration of scripture and theology um, is just billions of, of people who are doing that kind of work, few, yeah. few with the level of astuteness of, uh, of Bauckham. So did you Bauckham, study under, pardon? did you study under Bauckham? Yeah. At St. Andrews, he was my, uh, PhD supervisor. Yeah. That's what I thought. He, he's one of my favorite, uh, you introduced me to him in our, in revelation course. And then, uh, I went on to really appreciate. So his three of his books in particular, uh, God crucified, it's been published with another name now, uh, but it was God uh, Jesus and the God of Israel. Yeah. Yes. That was phenomenal in terms of just rethinking and, and coming to the concept of the divinity of Jesus from a completely different perspective. Uh, and then his two books, one, the, the Bible and ecology and the, I think the Bible and politics. And I've recommended those on my social media before, but, but it's really cool to see somebody who's I first thought of as a biblical studies scholar kind of branching into those realms and doing really, really good work. And we'll talk about this a little bit later. I, I want to get more into it, but the the idea of biblical scholarship kind of being siloed off from either systematic theology or philosophical inquiry is, is a problem uh, and how those disciplines kind of sometimes are at odds with each other. And uh, we'll get there. But for, before we jump into that, I do want to I want to know, so I've never asked you, and I just want to know, you taught in Fiji for a while. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. And you would mention it in class every now and then, and you would tell us some interesting stories and anecdotes and things. But how did you how did you end up there? Because that's not, I mean, I know people that go there for their honeymoons uh, or to snorkel or whatever, but I don't know people who end up there teaching biblical studies. And so how did you, how did that happen? And what, what did that just tell me how that's affected your life as well as how you got there. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the, the the short answer is they were the only ones who were willing to give me a job <laughs> after I was finishing up at St. Andrews. Part of it was, and I, I recognize being on the other side of it now, you know, you'll have a, a, a search for a New Testament position. You get 200 applications. So yeah. uh, I'd not quite finished my dissertation at this point. And so I think it was easy for people to just toss my resume aside. Uh, but mm-hmm. Pacific Theological College in Suva, Fiji. Uh, they were open to having me come, and um, they had one of the fellows, older, retired fo- uh, professors at St. Andrews, they had some connection with, and so he was able to give me an interview. They initially, we, and we, my wife is from Hawaii, so that made it a draw in, uh, you know, what, what might seem a little bit of an unconventional move, having spent a lot of time in the Pacific, uh, albeit in Hawaii, kind of mentally prepared us, and we're pretty sure we we're going to go, we're all excited. And then they gave the job to someone else and we we're kind of crushed. Cause we, you know, you just have a feeling yeah. like, Oh, that's God's path for us. Um, and yet a few weeks later, that person um, rejected the offer and they gave it to me and uh, spent uh, three fine years there. And uh, 
just transformative in all sorts of ways. Uh, for our first mm-hmm. two children were born in Scotland and Dundee, but uh, third one was born in uh, in Fiji, so that was a lot of fun. Um, and what's what's neat about the situation there at uh, Pacific Theological College is you all live together in what's a kind of a quasi village with students from all over the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And because community is such a highly valued thing in the all the Pacific Islands, you you feel at home and welcomed and supported in a way that you would just I don't know would really happen in almost any scenario in the in the States. And so we would have uh, one of the Samoan students would send his daughter over with dinner for us to honor us as a professor. Uh Students would be bringing us vegetables. You you lived on campus and everyone lived there. So um, just uh, a remarkable sense of community. And uh, I should I should actually clarify uh, a remarkable reality of community because, you know, nowadays, People come to church or something and say, oh, yeah, man, I want the sense of a community, which kind of means I want to feel connected to people yes. without any corresponding obligations to do anything or even show up. Right, right. Um, whereas in the Pacific, there is just that deeply, uh, deeply rooted sense of belonging to one another. Mm-hmm. And so amidst all the other particular things I could mention and the benefits of uh, being in a cross-cultural situation – uh, the Pacific, who, who really are the uh, Olympic champions of welcome in humanity, <laughs> I, I just don't know that you could outstrip them in, the, in just the spirit of aloha, as we say in, in Hawaii. Uh-huh. Uh, that was what what uh, struck me the most. And then, you know, correspondingly, that's just revealing my own deficits in that regard. <laughs> um, you're, so, yeah, you're originally a New Englander, right? Oh, yeah. 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 Born and raised. Just about the polar opposite. (laughs) What that would be. I found being a Southerner in New England for the two years I was up there, I found New Englanders were the it it was like like a, a. one of those candy that you bite into. It's crunchy on the outside. But once you get past the crunchiness, they're. Just the sweetest can be on the inside, and I, that was my experience. Was as opposed to the South, where on the outside they're super sweet and nice, but on the inside they're you know praying imprecatory psalms against you. And New England, it was the opposite. But at least they're praying the psalms, so that's nice. <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. And then you go to another culture, and it's completely different. Did you find in Fiji was there a hunger? for theological training and biblical training because it was seen as kind of a spiritual act of worship or what what, was it similar to what you see here? Because the reason I ask is in the West and Western context, you know, typically listening, learning, our attention spans are getting shorter. Our, there's kind of a, you know, we're on the clock, we got to go. And then when you go outside of Western cultures, a lot of times it's more of a openness or a relaxation or just a taking it in, kind of thing that I just wonder, I've never been in the Fiji context. So did you sense yeah, any of that a, at all? Not a huge difference. And I, I think part of it is because um, my experience at Gordon Conwell is, has been because it's, you know, graduate school and people tend to be paying for it themselves mm-hmm. that the, the overwhelming majority of students, whatever their capabilities might be, are genuinely interested in the material. And so, um, they're they're engaged and and they want to learn and and that was true in the the Pacific as well and in fact interestingly um, 
in the Pacific, so so Pacific Theological College was a mainline operation. So it's mm-hmm. the um, World Council of Churches type thing. I was really the only evangelical. Um, the other Western staff would have been far to the left of me. Pacific mm-hmm. staff are kind of a mix. They have a deeply rooted penchant for traditionalism, but they still want to be in uh, sync with the rest of the World Council of Churches, and so they um, kind of adopt some of those postures mm-hmm. as well. But um, what's really interesting is people are at seminary in that context because their church tells them to go. Mm-hmm. So I remember it took me a long time to realize that when I'd ask them, well, what do you want to do after graduation? Perfectly normal question in the Western context. Mm-hmm. The invariable answer was, well, what the church tells me. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I think you could balance a natural, maybe a, a more of a cultural patience or receptivity, but balance with the fact that not all of them were at seminary just because they wanted to be, whereas right. the vast majority of seminary students in the States are. So I, I think at the end of the day, I was delighted with uh, both mm-hmm. the student population I had there and, and here. So I've never had... What what I assume perhaps in some undergraduate settings where you're pulling right. teeth because people, the parents right. send them there or they don't care about the Bible but they have to take this class that, that that's never been thankfully a part of my teaching experience. Yeah, that's my all of my teaching experience has been outside of academia has been to lay people and and interested very interested lay people but in church settings and and even in. In church settings, there's sometimes a, a, a unspoken pressure to uh, keep things, keep the cookies on the bottom shelf. You know, don't you don't want to push people. You don't. It's just a very like seeker. People aren't going to pay attention. Then nobody wants to sit for. A, I used to say I wanted to do a class, and we would meet for two hours with a 15 minute break in between, and I would have people at church look at me like nobody's going to sit for two hours, and I was like, well, I think they will if they're really interested. And if it's engaging, I mean, the classes I took with you were sometimes a couple hours and, you know, we would just like, this is really interesting stuff. We want to be here. And it's hard to get that in every setting, especially when they're not paying an extraordinary amount of money to be there. Right. (laughs) Well, you're you did your Ph.D. on one verse in Revelation. Is that right? Uh, not not exactly. It was it was more like a third of a verse. The one who is and was and is to come in part of Revelation one four. How? Because people watching this, I mean, I know because was in your class and you talked about that and, it, and it's fascinating and it is a super important concept. But for the average person just watching this interview, they would think, wait, how can you do a Ph.D. on just that one thing? How how is there enough? You know, what? <laughs> so, was, yeah. In fact, there's more than enough um, in, in at least two directions. So on the one hand, um, that little phrase is seen rightly as an interpretation of Exodus 3.14, I am who I am, God's name for himself. And so part of the thesis was all about the use of the divine name in early Judaism, early Judaism meaning Judaism around the time of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had to look up all the instances where it was written down, and sometimes uh, it was written in old Hebrew letters. Uh, your 
listeners might not realize that the Hebrew they don't understand when they see it written, you know, uh, is actually the newer script. Mm-hmm. There's a paleo kind of almost runic, scratchy sort of paleo script. Um, actually, was it was it your or something else that one of the fellas has a whole history of the Hebrew alphabet? Yes, Christopher Dost. He was yeah. our Old Testament text. So a little cross product yes. placement there, um, <laughs> so they can learn all about that. Um, and, and it was probably in Paleo Hebrew that the uh, name was scratched into the uh, high uh, carven. Let's let's you know make it a little more <laughs> dwarvish. Is carven into the uh, head head plate on the uh, high priest. Mm-hmm. So how did they write it? And sometimes they'd use red ink. Um, at Qumran, I think we have an example of that. And of, then what of red they, letter, like uh, actual yeah, red letter somewhere. Yeah, they just kind of put the name in special ink, and then they'd have all kinds of substitutions for it, uh-huh. both in writing and speech. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was just all this stuff surrounding the sacredness of the name, and I had to try to figure out, find the evidence, and then figure out why they would have stopped saying the name after mm-hmm. all those centuries of saying it. And my my speculation, and it can't be more than that, is there are probably a, a number of interwoven concerns, whether the name was being misused in, in oaths uh, or uh, taken in vain in all the many ways we might do that. And uh, eventually, it probably was only spoken out loud according to its letters, because it, sometimes it substitutes different vowels for the real vowels, which is how you get Adonai. Again, mm-hmm. don't want to get too deep into the weeds there. But suffice it to say, um, they uh, probably only heard it Maybe once a year when the high priest would, would, would say it, I suspect they probably heard it during the daily blessing in the temple as well. Mm-hmm. But they did do a decent job, it seems, uh, keeping that from widespread knowledge. So that's that whole side. But then when we say God is the one who is, you immediately get engaged with a lot of Greek philosophy where Plato, for instance, will talk about absolute reality as that which always is. Right, justice, truth, beauty, etc. And so, I had to take a year with Plato, trying to figure out his whole um, understanding of reality, and particularly how that dovetailed with a Jewish philosopher named Philo, right around the time of Jesus, who whose life project is to kind of see the Bible interpreted allegorically in his own unique way, merged with. Greek philosophical conceptions, especially Platonic ones. Mm. Uh, And so for Plato, when the Septuagint translates, I am who I am as ego imi haon, I am the one who is, he just, I think, saw that as a gateway to join uh, Judaism and Plato in holy matrimony, as it Mm. were, Um, Mm. that, that just like Plato, the Bible was speaking about absolute reality. So you, you put it in those terms, and then it's like, oh, yeah, there's more than enough work to do. busy for three years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They, we, we just did uh, here in Disciple Dojo was Judaism January, and I reviewed and looked at a number of Jewish uh, resources, and, and a couple of them. One I just looked at, just reviewed, was the Jewish Annotated Apocrypha. And, um, and there was a lot of discussion in that about the divine name about Philo and about that tension that the Jews of the second temple period were living under when Hellenism was kind of the dominant 
cultural pressure and theological pressure that they were feeling. And so it's, it's interesting that the book of the Bible that kind of has the most, uh, or that, that has the fingerprints of that on it, I would, to me, the most is the last book in the Bible is you see that in Revelation, bringing those two worlds together, the imagery of Hellenism and cultural concepts that the Greeks were well familiar with, and then deeply, deeply rooted in the Hebrew Bible uh, in scripture. So it, it's a world that I don't think a lot of people have ever given a lot of thought to because apocalyptic, as you mentioned earlier, is weird. It's, it's hard. It doesn't make sense all the time. <laughs> yeah, and 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 it's it's a shame, particularly where you're just talking about this cultural pressure, which is why the topic of the divine name was really interesting, because it's this juxtaposition of early Christianity, early Judaism, and and Hellenism, but with questions of diversity, which I know you're quite concerned about, and uh, very much a part of the cultural landscape. If if we just open our eyes to the social realities of the first century, we see that people were constantly wrestling with that pressure of how do you keep your identity as a small, weird little minority group in the face of cultural pressure, which is trying to shape you into a different mold. Um, and so and it, it's a religious question, but it's also a sociological question. But, but when you, as I'm sure you touched on, when you read the Apocrypha and, and those questions of Jewish identity in the, in the Roman Empire under the Hellenistic empires, uh, it speaks directly to uh, a lot of questions people have. How do I keep my identity ethnically, religiously, sociologically in the midst of these these great pressures? Which again brings us back to the Book of Revelation, uh, where yeah, there's it, pressure to conform. Everything comes back to Revelation. <laughs> it always does. Yeah, it always does. Yeah, it's. I'm going to be having. So on Friday, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Dr. David De Silva, and we're going to talk about the Apocrypha and about that Hellenistic concept, and we're going to unpack that more. So teaser for yep. viewers that are watching this. He's stay a great tuned, guy and a great scholar. So I was going to ask if you guys knew each other personally. Yeah, I know. Him, I know him a wee bit. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. We, we connected at SBL this past year in person, but we've been online friends for a number of years. So yeah. I'm excited to have him as two, two, of my, two big influential scholars in one week here on the channel. It's just it's I'm like a kid at Christmas. Uh, it does come back to Revelation and not just because that's your area of study and my area of passion and teaching, but also because Revelation, like you talked about, it gives it. it it gives people a glimpse of the gospel in a way that the other gospels don't. Uh, and it, and it presents it in a way that captures the imagination as much as the mind and the intellect. Did you find your way to revelation through the works of Tolkien or did you find the works of Tolkien through your passion of revelation or were they always intertwined? Cause you've taught a class, teach a class on J.R. Tolkien, or at least you yeah, did very, when I was there. Very how, do, how does this relate? Yeah, very much the former, because I wasn't uh, even a Christian until I was 18. Uh, but I vividly remember uh, probably fourth grade reading The Lord of the Rings. It might have been April vacation uh, and just being absolutely captivated. Not always enjoyed, you know, uh, is it Dallaire's book of Greek myths, the uh -huh. uh, very uh, colorful, uh, illustrated children's version. I just loved all those stories. And so... 
you can get the idea coming into the church that none of that is is worthy or relevant, but just sitting with revelation made me realize that that was where those kind of yearnings and um, deeper truths symbolically depicted, that was where they resided. Uh, clearly not only in Revelation, Revelation itself is drawing on Exodus and Daniel and Isaiah and any number of other things. Mm -hmm. um, but that was where you could get that, for lack of a better word, mythological flavor that I'd always been attracted to um, and uh, have it contributing to biblical Revelation. I just even on my desk here, I've got. Um, I, I assume as an illustrator, you must appreciate the works of uh, the Japanese artists uh, Hiroshige and Hokusai. And just looking at oh, yeah. this uh, Hiroshige print, uh, one of his uh, what is it, hundred and hundred uh, famous views of Edo. Uh -huh. And there's something about an image that circumvents your usual rationalistic defense mechanisms and, and kind of penetrates in a, in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and poetry can do that. It's not just a visual thing or a musical thing. Uh, good poetry can, can achieve a, a similar effect. Mm -hmm. But all those modes are different than just explaining things, which is the typical Protestant modus operandi for whatever reason, maybe because... Mm -hmm. We privilege salvation by faith alone and then knowing precisely what it is we're meant to believe, a narrow but common understanding of faith. Uh, maybe that's why uh, maybe kind of an iconic reaction against some of what I would deem to be the excesses of right. church art and architecture through the centuries. And, and I, I have immense sympathies for that. Um, nonetheless, some, something's lost when we imagine it's just about explaining things now um which means i'm caught in perpetual irony because here i am perpetually explaining <laughs> things uh that i'm saying are not meant to be explained in that way so <laughs> well it's it's a it's a, a tension a dialogue a back and forth you know like yeah. you they feed it's a self what's a, a feedback loop um you you exp good art it captures your imagination, but then if it just remains in the imagination and the feeling and never gets translated into anything resembling thought and intellect, it just remains uh, like saccharine. It's just, it's just a nice feeling. But when you can then translate it into or, or bring out the depth to it in a way that makes sense intellectually, then what I find that makes me want to go back to the art and look at it with fresh eyes and and it's and then it just creates that feedback loop i just read i just finished two days ago i finished uh, homer iliad and the odyssey i'd never read those growing up in school just never read them i've read a bunch of other stuff but never those and then so reading them i was enjoying especially the old testament uh, bible teacher in me was really liking the iliad because i saw a lot of connections with the, oh, the yeah. David and the time of the around that time in Israel. But I didn't when I was reading the Odyssey, I was less I guess I was less captivated by it. But then when I read, I think Lewis Marcos had a book from Achilles to Christ, and it was why Christians should read the classics. So I went and read his chapters on the Iliad and the Odyssey, and it immediately 
gave me a depth of appreciation for those books that I on my own reading had missed because I had a, t a competent guide kind of walking me through and giving his view, his opinion, you know, other classic scholars might not agree with him, but it, it gave me a, a, a new appreciation. And I think with good art, sometimes you need that exactly what you're doing, giving people that depth of appreciation, like with Tolkien, a lot of people don't have, they don't, they aren't initially drawn to that world, you know, to the fantasy world. It just doesn't do anything for them. But then when they, like when the movies came out, for instance, a lot of people who would never read the books, watch the movies, they liked the movies that made them then go back to the book and read it when they never would have read it on their own. And I think good art and good explanation or depiction or however you want to call it can have that effect. But what, what do you, as a, as a Tolkien fan, what do you think about the movies and you know, are you a fan? Are you a hater? Are you yeah. indifferent? Uh, I'd say Peter Jackson, given economic realities, right? That if you want the CGI and the high quality cast and all the rest of it, that you're probably going to have to make some compromises. And so he probably did as good a job as you could do in making a film adaptation. There were a few what I call categorized as crimes against Tolkien, namely the uh, characterization of Faramir as this wounded, you know, his dad doesn't love me enough and uh, that, that, that I had no, no use for. Aragorn, I think, was a little weak. And I don't know how he managed to, in my mind, botch the greatest scene in the whole book, which is Gandalf defying the Witch King at the gates of Gondor, just as the horns blow and Rohan and its riders descend from the hills. I, mm -hmm. I don't know how you couldn't just do that paint by numbers, but I think it's because Gandalf had to be on a descending um, path in terms of importance and Aragorn ascending and therefore you had to diminish Gandalf's importance in that scene. Mm. Whereas if you, if you just hadn't weakened Aragorn to begin with, you wouldn't have had to do that. So, but these are, you know, in the great scheme of things, fear. I, I, didn't, I don't think Denethor needed to. Uh, I, I would have thought burning alive would have been sufficiently dramatic without having to <laughs> jump, uh, off. jump off. And uh, yeah, and I didn't appreciate uh, Indiana Baggins in the, the Ring of Doom. <laughs> <laughs> ending where, where again one would have thought that Gollum chomping the ring and falling into the uh, flames of Ordruin would would have been sufficient without an Indiana Jones like uh, pull up from Sam at the last right. minute. So, but <laughs> in the big scheme of things, those are prime minor. Those are those are legit, and those are you know those are inter. But visually and the casting, maybe maybe Liv Tyler, we might have found someone else but the casting apart from that was just just yeah. spot on you really believed in every one of those characters so he he did so many things so wonderfully well i should speak i should speak well of the movies <laughs> i find that the lord of the rings movies it, i went into the movies having only read part of the I, I had not gotten through the books and i'd read a little bit but i bought the book because i knew the movies were coming out it's like i want to read the book first then watch the movie but then i realized I need to have a visual anchor for a lot of these names and a lot of the 
concepts and places and stuff like that just as a visual person i needed that so then when i saw the movie again going back and reading the book it actually is it's a i got to experience the best of both because i got to enjoy the movies as fresh movies and then i got to read the book and we're like well this is even better than the movies were so it was kind of that's the order that i would encourage people because it just the book's almost always better than the movies and so you get more out of it but then the hobbit adaptation was now my daughter though my daughter uh has surprised me the fact that there's a kind of um viewer's version that takes out all the nonsense and gives you the straight narrative, which again would have been really? so easy filmable. Yeah. Um, and it's available, you know, you find it various places online. And right. uh, she, who has very high standards, says it's uh, really good watched that way. So no elf princesses or rabbit sleds or any of the rest of that right, stuff. Right. Um, that would be, I need to look that up because that's yeah. my complaint against the Hobbit movies where Peter Jackson took over a project that he didn't start and scrambled and just said, we'll just do it all CGI and just throw in some battles and stretch it out. And the studio yeah. wanted three and this and that. And, and it that just became one, a nightmare. That one was crazy because you really could just paint by numbers there with uh-huh. funny, interesting, dramatic scenes, all in, you know, a little bit of rest, a little bit of action. It was just cinematic to begin with. And so one really long picture, or fine, maybe maybe two, mm-hmm. but you could have just gone exactly with what was written. And uh, the characters are fun, there's humor, there's, you know, you don't have to massage it at all. Yeah. yeah. But he flapped it out a bit, and, and, uh, and now you get to resort to these home home movie cuts <laughs> yeah. well at least they're out there which is nice i need to go look at yes. that one now do I'm, I'm gonna touch the third rail the rings of power have you seen it Did, were you at all I, interested or are you like nope not tolkien not interested so so the short answer is i i watched five minutes and realized that if i didn't watch any more then when people asked me about it i wouldn't have to say anything one way or the other <laughs> So that was my decision. My, initially, I was I was thinking, why would you choose the most boring part of the whole unfolding saga of Middle Earth when the Silmarillion was just sitting there? Mm-hmm. And, and again, somewhat like The Hobbit, full of exciting episodes and, and intrigue and all this. And because... Um, the Silmarillion's kind of sketchy in the sense of uh, he didn't fully develop all the characters, dialogue, etc. You had plenty of room for necessary creative input. Mm-hmm. Um, you could be be creative in various ways. And then it turned out that um, the only reason they did that is because they only had the rights to the appendices of the Lord of the Rings. And so then I felt, <laughs> which is fine, you know, because the Tolkien estate is pretty tight with... Um, Right. giving permissions and stuff so so you know they may well have thought the Silmarillion was a great film but they just couldn't afford it which and given it cost a billion dollars or whatever <laughs> to, to do so I uh, blessedly have no opinion about the Rings of Power since I haven't seen it fair enough fair enough I I, yeah. I watched it as someone I've never read the Silmarillion and I don't know the the lore uh, to any degree so I watched it without kind of a Tolkien lens and thought this is entertaining, but this is some really bad writing, really, really bad writing 
the acting like I thought was Game great. Game of Thrones last three seasons bad or, or even worse? I didn't catch the last season of Game oh, of Thrones, so I can't speak much. to that. But I, uh, the general consensus was yes, it, it's similar yeah, to well, that. And, and there's it's been it's been analyzed to death by YouTubers who are talking defenders yeah, yeah. who just eviscerate it. But my uh, my critiques of it were it's just transparently ham fisted, yeah. uh, just bad just bad just not quality writing not bad like nefarious just not yeah, 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 good. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so but the acting and the visuals and the artists and all the people that worked on it did amazing jobs the writers and the showrunners i thought like well, why did these people get this job but anyway so i recommend breaking bad and better call saul if people want quality that is a great I, I only saw a couple episodes of Better Call Saw. I didn't see it all yet. But Breaking Bad was one of the shows I didn't want to watch at first because for some reason I had it in my mind that it was like a mafia crime show. I had no idea what well, it actually yeah, was. There is that dimension to it. Not mafia, but yeah. Yeah, no, I thought it was like about I didn't know. I didn't know it was about this character and his entire descent and and. I agree. I, it, it's, I think, one of the best TV shows ever made, Breaking Bad. Yeah. It, it's that good. It rises to the level of Greek tragedy. And I don't yeah. say that about much, having the, the deepest respect for Sophocles and Aeschylus and all the rest of them. But uh, Breaking Bad is really, really tremendous. Yeah. It, it is. I, I took a road trip out, out west one time, and I, I drove through Albuquerque, and I, I stopped at the, uh, the car wash. Oh, all right. Took a picture with I had drawn a picture of uh, Walter White for a friend of mine, and so I took a picture of that what I had drawn and sent it to him. I was Have like, I'm at the car wash. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you haven't seen Breaking Bad, this has nothing to do with biblical theology or, but it is just quality storytelling at its finest. Oh, although I think it has, if, if you ever want to see a portrait of of what sin is like, um, it is as grueling and extended portrait of. Um, bad decisions that sinful people make that spiral and snowball get. yeah so so i think it's and you know the best art is profoundly moral uh in the in the broadest sense right of or spiritually instructive that's kind yeah. of what makes it great uh great art are you going to teach a class on the the theology of breaking bad oh not so. a whole not a whole <laughs> special uh, seminar I, um, i'll use the clips in revelation um, oh yeah or or a clip. I, I I try to have a variety of film clips at the beginning of each class, and so mm -hmm. uh, I've shown Breaking Bad, a uh, little bit of Lord of the Rings. Um, mm -hmm. Try to g get th films, things people haven't seen, yeah. probably, to kind of expand their horizons. Uh, my favorite clips come from Andy Goldsworthy. Scottish or British artist. He's Northern British. He feels like he should be Scottish. Actually, he feels like he should be Elvish. Um, <laughs> he's got the film Rivers and Tides, which I don't know if you've seen, but I haven't seen that. He's remar It's a wonderful film. Um, he builds art in nature out of natural elements, and often those are subject to almost immediate uh, wind damage or they wash away. But but there's this moment. Is it? Is he the balance? Is it balance art? Uh, he does it? some of that. Yeah, he builds little cairns, but he also uh -huh. scrapes. The, my favorite um, clip from Rivers and Tides is he uh, goes about this river uh, in his uh, area, and he finds stones with iron and, and scrapes the stones until he gets a big ball of iron red pigment. Uh 
and then he tosses it into the river, and for a moment the river turns red. Oh wow! And he's got this wonderful explanation, um, which is so apocalyptic. He says that um, you know the the red seems so alien to this place, and yet it's so rooted and about this place. He says. <laughs> Because it's it's there in the stone, yeah. and um, and it's in our blood, and so we're connect. It's very mystical, and I think the best sense that we are mm-hmm. flesh and blood. We are in this organic connection with the created world around us. Yes, we're in the image of God, but we're equally like a stone. In fact, we're more like a stone than we are God in one sense. Mm-hmm. And so he's kind of. And he says it's that it's it's so amazing that something so intense could be also so hidden under the skin of the earth. Hmm. And he brings it out through his art. He he makes you realize the red. Um, yeah. And he and he says there's such a violence and an energy about that color that he just finds it remarkable. He says you'll you'll see a red maple tree against a mountain in Japan and it's his it's like a wound in the mountain. He's and he just has a way of looking at things. It's just remarkable. Yeah. And and that artistic ability uniquely displayed by him in that finding of this red pigment in the ironstones and then putting it making it visible that really is at the heart of what apocalyptic is, where you're penetrating beyond the appearance of the world, particularly the wicked world, the counter-creation, as I call it, Mm -hmm. um, penetrating with spiritual vision to see the enduring reality of God's kingdom. But you've got to have the ability to puzzle things out, to discern, to look beyond appearances and see reality. And art, among other things, helps us to develop that gift, that ability to move beyond what's merely here for a moment and and to see what's what's really enduring well that's a one yes and anything said with a northern english scottish almost accent automatically sounds more profound and cooler yeah uh, so well, would he, I, oh, he I have to watch it, it for that yeah. <laughs> but that is a perfect segue to I, I earlier today i pulled a quote from so one of your books creation and new creation and there was a quote that I loved in it. You say, even the non-romantic may feel their deepest desires lie not only out of reach, but somewhere beyond even their ability to conceive. Desire instead exists as a relational reality, flaming up in the conjunction of the inner wishes of the desirer and the object of desire. But while the desire of the soul for God constitutes the clearest application of Aristotle's model, it can also help us speak of God's action with respect to all created entities. He not only upholds them in their being at a basic level, he also implants in them a yearning to become what they ought to be. That, to me, dovetails exactly with what you're saying and with what we see when we read a work like Revelation, to a lesser degree Daniel and and parts of Ezekiel and uh, Zechariah, but I think finds its fullest expression in Revelation is you get a sense of that. It's it's beyond the ability to put into words. And it's like this yearning. I mean, especially, you know, the New Jerusalem and the later chapters of Revelation, but even the earlier, even to me, the, the throne vision uh, and the, the, the 144,000 and the ceiling of the uh, the great witnesses, you know, 144,000 uh, from all the tribes and just that interchange between the lamb and, and John as he's seeing it. 
that creates that longing, creates that yearning for, you know, like C.S. Lewis said, if there's something in this world that you can't realize in this life, then the simplest thing is the explanation is you're created for another world. How do you, uh, that quote in particular, I don't even know if you remember that quote, because I know people have shared with me something that I wrote a long time ago. I'm like, oh yeah, I did write that. But uh, unpack that a little bit for me in terms of revelation. Like how do you, do you see revelation bringing out this yearning and give maybe the viewers some, ex an example or two of revelation where it does that, where it, where it paints rather than speaks or teaches, I should say. Yeah, and that and that's one of the things I've been grappling with the um, grappling an appropriate dojo metaphor. Yes, I guess. we love grappling um, here. Trying to, yeah, f figure out is is it is it um, things that are constitutionally beyond speech. In other words, you just couldn't put them into words, or is it just really hard to put into words? So, so for example, if you you know listen to a, a symphony and you're you're incredibly moved. A, a poet might be able to bring that to articulate speech with, without replacing that experience, but maybe put it into words. Um, or, or is there some realm beyond um, expression in words? So uh, I, I wish I had an answer to that, but right now it's it's an open question. Hmm. Having said that, we all have that experience of encountering realities that just go beyond our ability to articulate. Um, and, and that's... Uh, Revelation, I think, of course, a lot of it's by way of horror, right? Horrific destruction, decreation, taking a part of the world, um, which is important to, to reckon with because that is part of our experience of life. Um, but I think the visions of the throne that you touched on in the New Jerusalem really do gesture towards a dimension of reality, which we know is there, but we we can't just grab hold of it. And um, I think that that could speak to two things. One is that, like in our best experience of the created order, that perfect morning when you're healthy and young and and the sun is shining and the birds are singing and it just, just fills your heart with with joy and thanksgiving to God, um, that that somehow God's creative riches are such that even that experience can be transcended. Something more can be on offer than just that. Um, but it also speaks in and through that to the absolute infinitude of God who is inexhaustible and who um, therefore will always offer the worshiper more than they currently are able to to take in. And uh, the end of the very last quote there in the uh Creation, New Creation book uh, from Gregory of Nyssa talks about that, that you will just have this continual new appreciation for God because of his infinite uh, greatness. The, the one thing I will stress, though, uh, whenever we think about another world or a dimension within this world is created reality is not a barrier to that. Created reality as such is not a barrier, but a gateway. Mm -hmm. And... The new heavens and new earth is the fulfillment and consummation and bringing all that stuff before God rather than a veil that's to be stripped away. Mm -hmm. And uh, the illustration I like to use, and you'll appreciate this, 
is the uh, grain offering in Leviticus 2, baking little lady, baking a cake for Jesus, as I like to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a token offering in the sense of it's one cake and one little bit of the cake goes on the altar. But the point of that is not that that little bit is all that matters in life. It's that the whole of life is lived before God, his gift of the land, his gift of labor, his gift of um, the ability to do all the things that we do. And we bring a token of that in the grain, not we literally nowadays, but you know, the Israelite would bring the grain offering as a token of the whole created order that has given rise to this, um, this bread not rising bread, because that would involve yeast or leaven, but, <laughs> but you know, given the opportunity to uh, offer a portion. And so I, I think people often have a misunderstanding that the created order is somehow a barrier to God. Now, it's true that in our idolatrous state, it can become a barrier, which is one of the reasons God permits it to fall into uh, disarray and decay. So we recognize that it's God and his ordering word, which is primary, not the thing itself. But that's really no fault of the creation. That's the fault of our uh, hyper-controlling idolatrous hearts, which want to manage and control everything. Um, but the world as such, the birds and the uh, the dogs and all the rest of it, those are good gifts from God. And used properly, they, they become a pathway to to him, not a barrier uh, from him. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's something that I think is important to point out because of in most people's eschatology and even many Christians' eschatology, the world is they 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 take an extreme uh, Peter image of everything being burned up, and as if its destruction is the point because the world is bad rather than what I think is a, a, a more accurate image of what Peter is getting at, that the fire that consumes is a refining fire or, or a revealing fire so that everything will be laid bare. And like you talk about in your book, it decreated, not because creation is bad, but because creation has been twisted, has been warped, has been defiled by sin. And so just like a refiner has to burn away the impurities before what's pure remains. That's the sense, especially in Revelation, that you get the new Jerusalem doesn't stay up in heaven and we go there. It comes down to heaven and the the material and the spiritual are now uh, wedded, at least in a different way than they have been up until then. Yeah. And that's an important point. Most people are kind of drift into a sort of you know, uh, Gnostic mentality, creation, bad spirit, good, uh, die, go to heaven. That's the goal. And, and that has incredible ramifications, not just on how Christians treat the world and, and ecological concepts or capitalistic concepts, but also on what it does to our imagination where you have Christians who are almost, there's almost a revulsion. I shared on YouTube on the, the post uh, I get comments regularly, not reg, not too regularly, but every now and then I will get comments by people who point out the fact that I have action figures behind me as as pagan, as uh, you know, this is this is demonic. You know, I've got Thor behind me up there and oh, Thor's a god and the gods were demons and that's pagan. That's demonic. And they it's almost like there's an allergic reaction to the imaginative, whereas I look at it like you 
growing up, seeing the mythology and the larger than life heroes and the epics and fantasy, to me, that's like it was for Lewis and Tolkien and the other Inklings. That's a thumbprint of God in the world. Twisted, distorted, warped by sin, uh, especially in its how it unfolds with the actual pagan practices, but not without the residual image of God. Um, some of the, I think some of the things that bring me the closest to like what you're describing, uh, whether the scene with the artist throwing the red into the river and his description of it, or good poetry or good symphony. For me, one of the things that does it are Studio Ghibli films, Hayao Miyazaki oh, films, yeah. that, that I can listen to the score from Totoro or Spirited Away or something, not even having to see the movie as amazing visually as the movie is, but just the score moves me in ways that still nothing that I've ever experienced, even in church, has been able to stir me at an emotional level that way. Uh, or very few, I shouldn't say nothing, but very few things that are overtly Christian. And and I think that speaks to the the innate draw of apocalypse. I mean, you're, you're a father, you've raised kids. You, you've oh yeah, no, Spirit of the Way is our favorite, uh, well, my daughter and I, our favorite uh, film or, or for her and, and right up, right up there for me. In fact, yeah, that's, that's my number one go-to source for the film clips. I'm glad you raised it. I show the uh, cleansing of the stink spirit to uh-huh. uh, illustrate the cleansing of creation. I show uh, Chihiro almost forgetting her name, Sen, uh-huh. to talk about Revelation's theme of maintaining your identity in Christ. And then I show the climactic train journey scene just because it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen on film. So I don't uh-huh. need a particular reason to <laughs> show it. There's also yeah. this wonderful and the, the good thing is you said, well, you, I haven't seen the film, so I don't understand what you're talking about. Well, that's you just have to go see it. Um, you have to watch I mean, it. Yeah. I have all sorts of things I'd say I'd like you to see, but Spirit of the Way, you kind of have to have to see. <laughs> um, but there's just this wonderful reconciliation, and uh, it's it really is a comedy in the best sense that everything everything works out, but in, mm-hmm. in a typically crazy Miyazaki sort of a fashion – um, which is why why I like it. And and sure, you know, I, I, I do think, okay, if if I was in a, a social cultural setting where people took these spirit beings um, more more seriously, right, um, would I be able to have the same appreciation? Maybe not. Although I don't know, you know, how many people could take the radish spirit. He's one of these chubby <laughs> Goofy looking uh, spirit. I'll put I'll put images on as you're talking yeah. about this. So I don't know if we could we could take it that uh, that seriously, <laughs> but nonetheless, like like Thor, you know, they're they're just figures for us, em- emblematic of certain spiritual qualities or experiences or something. So so right. sure, I, I I do appreciate people who are um, enmeshed in situations where those things are a more clear and present danger to their spiritual health, but I'm able to take them as emblems of, um, of Christian truth. So, so for example, in, in revelation 12, we've got this war of the dragon and the, the woman clothed with the sun. And, uh, you can find plenty of pagan parallels to dragons threatening savior figures. Mm-hmm. Um, and so John clearly repurposes that, around the particular claims of, of Jesus. Uh, he directs our attention in a certain way. It's equally clear, though, that the mythology as such, dragons, sky women, 
threatens babies. Mm -hmm. It's a part of the deep reservoir of, of human experience. And John does not say, well, because that's been misused in Isis and Osiris or Zeus and Typhon, I'm going to just have to explain it without those sorts of images. No, he, he's happy to lay hold of them as a means of communicating Christian truth. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a, a two-edged sword. You, you say the same thing about the temple in Jerusalem. Um, it, it is radically different from every other temple in antiquity in that first, it doesn't have a, a statue in it, which is theology of the highest order. Um, and, and it's dedicated to the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, not Baal or um, Marduk or any of the, the, these other um, cats. And yet, you can look at it from another angle and say the temple looks like other ancient Near Eastern temples. It, it is um, an intelligible mode of religious expression, one that would make sense in that, in that era, precisely so that they could then wonder why you don't have a statue. But there has to be a degree of communicability, um, some degree of common experience that God draws upon to communicate his truth in a particular time and a particular place. So anyway, that's no, it's it's right on. And it's it's so important to know those cultural backgrounds and those cultural myths because they inform they, they help us to appreciate the real uh, and and what scripture is doing with it. We last summer, our whole series here at Disciple Dojo was on the ancient Near East backgrounds of the temple, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, uh, dragons, that whole thing of the chaos monster. And I kind of took viewers through not a, not a deep, deep dive, but a deeper dive than they would probably get in, in a local church setting through the ancient Near East and particularly the, the West Semitic, the Baal uh, imagery and the Egyptian imagery. But you see it having just read, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey. I see resonances of that in the Hellenistic, the Greco-Roman world all over the New Testament. And even Paul, the textbook example of going to Mars Hill using their image, their, their monument to the unknown God and saying, Hey, speaking of unknown God, let me tell you about him. Well, if Paul had not read any of the pagan poets, if Paul was unfamiliar with the culture of the Greek gods, then that would be an opportunity lost to make that bridge. And so when I you know, people on Facebook, sometimes they'll post, they only know about me from Disciple Dojo and I'll post something from a comic book and they're, well, what's up with comic books? Why do you read? And I'd say, well, that's comics or the Marvel comics from the golden or the silver age to the bronze age. So the 60, late 60s to the mid 80s to me is the equivalent of the heroic age in Greek culture was to the ancients. It's, it's, these are our cultural heroes, you know, Peter Parker rather than Odysseus. Um, there's, they just transcend the medium and they kind of pull in archetypes and they capture bigger things in the cultural conscience. You have to know those cultural touchstones in order to speak to that culture. And Revelation does that on two fronts. It does it with Greco-Roman, the, the perfect example, that little mini epic in the middle in chapters 12 through 15, 16, 17, 18. And then it does it with the Old Testament imagery, with the, the biblical imagery. I mean, one of the things I learned from you in your course was just how rooted Revelation is in 
Exodus imagery, Ezekiel imagery, everything from the seal on the forehead, the plagues, you know, the decreation. Well, that's what the Exodus plagues were in Egypt. And now Revelation, it gets blown up to a larger scale. People tend to, and I'd like to hear what you think why this is the case. People tend to avoid Revelation or they tend to fixate on it to a degree that is far from biblically healthy. Um, why do you think that is? Because well, it's, it's hard to understand. Um, and it's always been hard to understand. People have always puzzled over it. And yet, if we look at church hymnody, if we look at church art, then of course, Revelation's all over the place. And so, so that, that there's part of the explanation is it doesn't lend itself to explanation, which particularly for Protestants, but for all Christians, is, is something we typically want to say, what, what do I understand? What do I do in response to that? It's harder to get that out of Revelation, but it's easy to walk into York Minster, for example, this massive cathedral in, uh, in England, and from 100 yards away or however long, enormous length, you can see uh, they have panels on Genesis and Revelation, and, and one of the panels is the uh, Grapes of Wrath. That, that stained glass panel is a vivid illustration of how Revelation works and why it's effective in certain contexts, art and uh, music, right? Um, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne, right? We all know that wonderful mm -hmm. hymn. And so it has been used, and I, I dare say used properly, it just doesn't fit well into a typical explaining model of things. So kind of majority of your listeners probably coming out of evangelical uh, Protestant circles, perhaps. And so it doesn't suit that sort of experience as well as the book of Romans, right? Which is why churches will preach through, through Romans um, for seven years or something right <laughs> yeah. which which i don't think is a great idea either i love the book of romans but but it's part of the canon it's not right uh, um the, the the master of the rest of the canon so uh revelation just takes a different different way uh of understanding and so you have to not only put new data into your existing paradigm you've got to have a new paradigm of how you understand this not a new confession mm -hmm but a new paradigm of, of what it means to understand something. What I'd like to do, because this, I mean, we could do podcasts for hours and hours and hours and never even scratch the surface of Revelation. Right. And, and that's not the point. What I would like to provide for viewers is in the description to this video, I'm going to include a number of Revelation resources. And I'm going to include things that can take you further if you're interested in studying this most misunderstood, uh, most intimidating book in the Bible, or at least in the top two or three, in my opinion. What I want to get for viewers of this episode, though, is I would like to throw a couple of talking point topics at you from Revelation. That people Lightning just, round. Yes, they have questions about, and I'd like for you as succinctly as you'd like to, yeah. or you can unpack it as much as you'd like to, give viewers something that they can walk away with going, oh, that makes a little more sense to me now. But uh, I just want to throw a few of them out. Sure. 666, Mark of the Beast. Is it COVID vaccines, computer chips, uh, you know, all the stuff that's floating around TikTok? Is it the Chinese spy balloon? Uh, you know, everybody's got something to say about 666. So yeah. 
what should viewers walk away with, in your opinion, when it comes to 666? So historically, I think we actually can say with a reasonable degree of confidence that because if you if you write the name of Nero Caesar in Hebrew letters and add them up because the letters equal numbers, it is um, adds up to 666. And given that Nero was a notoriously anti-Christian, megalomaniacal dictator, then and because the uh, Roman emperor's desire for worship as God is such a prevailing theme in Revelation, it's a very good, um, very good, secure interpretation as re as interpretations of Revelation go to say it's somehow associated with Nero. It's equally true that seven is kind of a number of perfection in Scripture, and so seven 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 would be God's ideal number. Six 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 would be that number that gets so close but is at the end of the day not who god is and is a counterfeit which is again a perfect portrayal of who the beast is in revelation so historically john's people i think are gonna assuming it's written circa 90 1895 they're gonna think of domitian the current roman emperor but of course they're also going to think of pharaoh of old and all these other old testament figures who have been kind of merged into the portrait of um of the beast. And so for our own appropriation of that truth, so that's the historical thing. The the question is to what extent does any given ruler or government arc closely towards someone who hates God and wants to persecute God's people? Um, and yeah, there well could be some ultimate antichrist at the end of time, but that's not our concern if we're not at the end of time. But it's very much our concern to maintain our faithful witness to Jesus as Lord and therefore not to capitulate to uh, God-hating, God-defying, God-substituting, you know, uh, rulers. To that extent, then, is it wise to get a chip on your hand so you can go into the shop and just pr – probably not <laughs> – because even if that isn't the ultimate end times antichrist, you're kind of putting yourself in the power of an entity who, to put it mildly, might not have your best interests at heart. And so I think we can we can back off of the this equals that thing where uh, the, the code equals the mark of the beast full stop, but we don't have to, for that reason, see 666 as purely a historical fact related randomly to, you know, Nero and those Christians there. There's a spiritual lesson, which is your economic life, your social life needs to be conducted in such a way that you honor God and all that you do. And so you got to be careful about compromising. And um, I mean, one fun fact, of course, is that is that everybody's worried about getting the mark of the beast on them somewhere. But the saints have God's name written on their forehead which is to me as clear an indication as you could wish for the fact that this is a spiritual reality more than a physical reality. Yeah. Um, but as I say, sure, if somebody wants to literally brand your skin as a marketing opportunity or as a, you know, a high tech convenience, then yeah, you should be wary of that. A very balanced answer. <laughs> right. And to the extent that your social life and your economic life demonstrate the values of the kingdom, that's good. And to the extent it demonstrates the values of a satanically deluded, sinful consumption mania humanity, well, 
do you need a physical mark <laughs> to demonstrate that, or are you sufficiently beast-like in your behavior that you might as well have six 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 on your four? That's the mm. challenge. Is yeah. the reality of the ethic of resistance to evil. The counter creation, as I call it, where people try to make the world in defiance of God and His ways. Um, the the physical mark in the vision is just the outward expression of an inward reality w- with knock on effects in your in your behavior. Yeah, I love it. That's that's a lot to chew on. And viewers, I'm going to put some resources in the description, like I said, so that you can go further in that, including our own superhero seminary video here on 666, where Professor Beastman talks all about that. The 144,000. Who are the 144,000? So my interpretation of that, which is shared by many, including my mentors, Greg Beale and, and Richard Bauckham, um, is that they, they represent the ideal people of God, Jew and Gentile gathered in the church. Because 12, you got in, in the um, vision of the New Jerusalem, New Jerusalem is marked off by the names of the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles. Uh, my math skills aren't great, but I can multiply 12 times 12, get 144, and 1,000 is, you know, a ton. So 144,000 equals uh, an ideal portrait of the church and particularly— in view of the census in, uh, and I think it's a census counting up of the tribes there in chapter um, six, and then they reappear on Mount Zion with Jesus. It's a picture of what in old times used to be called the church militant, the church as a gathered army here for the eschatological war, but they wage uh, war not with uh, physical weapons, but with uh, the weapons of the spirit, to borrow some language from uh, Paul. And I commend to your viewers one of the best documentaries ever made, uh, Weapons of the Spirit, by uh, filmmaker Pierre Sauvage, uh, a Frenchman who was born uh, as a Jew in a little village called Le chambon sur lignon um, which is, uh, was a French Huguenot village that t- of 5,000 or so people who sheltered 5,000 Jews during the war and kept them safe from the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wanted to find out. And he was a baby born in those circumstances. He wanted to know, why, how did this happen? And they knew the experience deep in their history of persecution. They knew their scriptures and knew that they had to help people. In fact, there's one charming scene where he's interviewing this old farming couple who uh, had uh, sheltered Jews. And they say, he says, why did you do it? And and they kind of shuffle and look at their feet and, he, and the, the guy says, say, say normal. it's normal. Hmm. It's like, what else would you do? Resist Hitler at the cost of your life potentially, but that's how normal life ought to behave. And the pastor, Andre Trochme, had uh, preached this kind of resistance, this ethic of resistance and preached that they wage war with the weapons of the spirit. And there's the uh, beautiful hymn, not with uh, swords loud clashing, not with bang of drums, with deeds of love and mercy, the mm. heavenly kingdom comes. Oh, that's beautiful. I choked up just thinking about it. Yeah. So, yeah, we do. We are militant people. We are warriors, but we're warriors who wage weapons, uh, wage war with the weapons of the spirit. Walking in the way of Jesus, Bauckham suggests following him wherever he goes, meaning keeping our faithful witness to the point of uh, costing our lives, if, if that's what it takes, in sacrificial love, even yeah. for our enemies. Yeah, that's that dovetails right into the next one I was going to ask you, which is the lion and the lamb. 
what's up with the lion and the lamb, because when he's introduced, he's introduced as a lion of Judah. Behold, he comes, the lion of Judah. You know, the, the people make banners with the lion and the might. And when oh, Jesus comes back, he's coming back as a lion. But then for the rest of the book, he's the lamb. And uh, so what, how can how how is the lion the lamb? How, what sense yeah. does that make? Yeah, I remember seeing a poster. The Lion of Judah has triumphed, dot, 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 Revelation 5, 5, or uh, I think that's the verse. Uh, big picture of a roaring lion. Uh, terrible poster because they should have a picture of a slaughtered lamb because that's the paradox John wants us to appreciate. Jesus is um, the descendant of David, more pointedly, the descendant of Ju you know, Judah's rule, um, and that Leonine imagery from Genesis 49 uh, Leonine, just a fun way of saying lion-like, but it's, it just sounds so nice. It sounds like more he, sophisticated. Yeah. So <laughs> he, he is that, but John hears the lion, but he sees the lamb. And so the lamb interprets the lion. The way in which Jesus conquers is the way of the lamb, the slaughtered lamb. And we, as his people, are to walk in that same way. Um, we tend to sometimes think of the sacrifice of Jesus as simply... Jesus doing what we can't do, namely dying for the sins of the world, which, of course, is true. He does die for the sins of the world, and we can't. But Jesus also does what we must do. He's our example. He gives us the path, and he couldn't have made it any clearer when he says, take up your cross daily and, and follow me, or love your enemies, and in so doing, you'll be sons of your Father in heaven who reigns on the just and the unjust. Yeah? And so... Um, we, we walk in the way of Jesus the Lamb. Yes, his power as the lion can uphold us and give us triumph in measure, but, but one of the central paradoxes of the book is that the saints are called as those who conquer, and yet in Revelation 13 it says explicitly the beast was given to wage war against them and to conquer them. And we're meant to live in that, that paradox. Yeah, we're children of the king. Um, children of the lion and sometimes we see that miraculous triumph uh, over the forces of evil but more often than not it's it's walking in the way of the cross um that the way up is the way down we need to be humbled with jesus before we're exalted and paul the apostle makes that as clear as anything could be in his entire life and disposition and theology first corinthians second corinthians makes that point with particular clarity. So we're looking at, the, again, a unified New Testament vision just um, expressed in dramatic visionary terms by Revelation, but Paul is giving that same message, uh, particularly in the Corinthian correspondence. Mm -hmm. It's, it's the, I think, the heart of the book or, or the hallmark of the book of Revelation is how, and, and you taught me this, it turns everything on its head. And it subverts every expectation from both Greek and Jewish expectations and shows how the gospel in reality, and it's just what Jesus said while he was here on earth, is the first will be last. You, you want to save your life? Lose it. I mean, it, it, that, that's gospel 101, but Revelation kind of vividly portrays yes. it. And I, this, this is our worthy is the lamb because he was slain, oh, yeah, design yeah. of our shirt. 
uh, that we have here at Disciple Dojo. If any viewer wants one of these, pick one up in our merchandise store. But the whole this was directly born from me sitting learning from Dr. McDonough and, and other Revelation scholars pointing out that it's Jesus, the lamb is worthy because he was slain, because he was slaughtered. And that's what, uh, you know, he, he bears the mark of being slaughtered even in eternity. Mm-hmm. And that's this ultimate taking the mark of shame, you know, the cross, the greatest shame that could ever be heaped on an individual by Rome and turning it into the, the greatest triumph in the history of the universe. Revelation does that all over the place. And, and, and it's, there's, there's so much more we could say, but we, we want to be cognizant of time. So I encourage readers really look into those passages and, and the lion and the lamb, how the lion is, he is the lamb. The la- when, they, when they say, you know, who will save us from the wrath of the, they don't say the wrath of the lion, they say the wrath of the lamb. And it's a beautiful image loaded with irony because I can't think of anything more, less wrathful than a sacrificial lamb. <laughs> so, well then t- tell me uh, along those lines, the Trinity in Revelation. Um, how does Revelation speak to the, the divinity of this lamb figure of, of Jesus? Yeah, well, one of the ways, um, there's a couple of ways. One, visually, in Jesus's appearance in chapter one to John, um, all that language is drawn from Theophanies, appearances of God in the Old Testament, particularly uh, Ezekiel 1 and, and Daniel 7. So his hair, his eyes, uh, his voice, all of that is showing uh, that the, he is the presence of God for us. Also, um, the title given to him, I'm the first and the last and the living one. And that's how it ought to be translated. Sometimes I'll have a full stop. I'm the first and the last and the living one in in a new sentence. And and that's possible, but it's unlikely because remember um, what I spent three years of my life was the one who is and was and is to come. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, John is is deliberately echoing that when he says he's the first and the last and the living one. And uh, for Greek uh, friends, that's ha'on for God is the one who is and Hazon, which is, it sounds about as close as you could get for the living one. Mm-hmm. Now, then there's the wonderful paradox. I'm the living one, and I was dead. I became dead, and behold, I live forever and ever. So the experience of um, Jesus's death is somehow present within his sharing of the divine identity. Bauckham's got some wonderful things to say about this in his book, uh, Theology of the Book of Revelation. Um, the Spirit is uh, active in Revelation, particularly in um, the messages to the churches. Um, and also in the initial greeting, though, it, it says the seven spirits who are before his throne, which is a puzzling turn of phrase and probably refers to the fact that the one true God can speak to, in this case, seven congregations with very different messages at precisely the same time. So it's, I think it's a way of talking about God's manifold activity in the world while he remains uh, one true and living God. So, so that's the Trinity and revelation in a, Mm. in a minute. 
I, I did not, when I, before taking your course, I had not ever seen Revelation as a Trinitarian, I mean, as an especially Trinitarian book. And then after taking it, I was like, well, it's the most Trinitarian. <laughs> like, I, I was like, I think I would put it up there when I talk about the concept of Jesus' divinity, like Revelation is usually one of the first stops. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because of just so much material. Well, the, the last thing is, can you give an example or you, you just kind of get, you alluded to some with the description of, of Jesus and his appearance coming from the Old Testament. Are there other ways that Revelation directly alludes to, not quotes, but alludes to the Old Testament that, that readers may miss their first time through, that they may not know, hey, keep an eye out for this because this is actually pulling from an Old Testament background. Uh, do you have any off the top of your head examples uh, that well, you go to in that regard? I mean, the examples are almost in every verse. I, th I think the most helpful thing is to recognize that the big picture of Revelation draws on three narrative uh, threads from the, the Old Testament. The first is creation. God's affirmed as creator in chapter 4 and then again in 14, and then says, Behold, I make all things new um, at, at the end of the book. And so one way to think about Revelation is, is it's the story of creation, God making all things, counter-creation, where people try to make the world in their own image. And this is evident from the fact that in chapters 12 to 20, we have a clear portrayal of forces of evil as a satanic trinity, the dragon, who is a fake of God the Father, the beast, the first beast, who's a fake Christ and anti-Christ, though John doesn't use that exact term, and the second beast who, like the Holy Spirit, uh, speaks on behalf of the other two, but in this case, of course, it's all lies and propaganda. And then that takes civilizational expression in Babylon, and so 12 to 20 is basically uh, the, the rise and fall of the satanic empire, which we can call counter-creation. Um, the plague sequences are about decreation, God taking things apart, and then recreation in New Jerusalem. So. You can, you can see a creation arc. As you mentioned, though, Exodus is even perhaps more useful as a narrative thread that God's people are oppressed under a wicked ruler like Pharaoh. They cry out to him and he answers with devastating judgment and liberates them uh, into his kingdom. Um, now, of course, the, the image used is the New Jerusalem. So a third thread from the prophets, which is very helpful, is the restoration of Jerusalem. Zechariah is the easiest place to see this. Beginning of the book, chapter one. How long, O Lord, before you have mercy on Jerusalem, restore it? And I'll take care of it. Chapter 14, he restores it uh, well beyond anything one could have imagined. And so whether it's Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, Zechariah, uh, Revelation can also be seen as the restoration of Jerusalem. So creation, exodus, restoration of Jerusalem, time all together, you get the book of Revelation in a nutshell. It's It really is fascinating how on every page, like if you take the Nestle Allen Greek Testament where that has the references on the side of margin to other passages in scripture, kind of cross-references, uh, when you open it to Revelation, like every page is just you're getting hits from the oh, Old yeah. Testament, yeah. pulling from something. You you can't, that's the, one of the reasons I, I mean, you are my New Testament professor, but in seminary, my focus has been, and even since seminary, has been Old Testament. And the reason Revelation and Romans are my two favorite New Testament books to study and to teach are because of how steeped, like, like no other book, 
they are in the Old Testament narrative, the big picture, the meta narrative of Scripture, and how Paul and John both presuppose that their readers are already familiar with that story in order to then build on it with what they're writing. And, and it really does. You had a quote. So in one of the books you contributed or you, you wrote, did you write or contribute to A Time for Sorrow? Uh, uh, I wrote one there. of the articles and then edited the rest. Okay, yes. I, in that book, uh, you had a quote in your chapter that said, the Old Testament was not like the first stages of a lunar rocket dropping off into the ocean once the gospel module reached a sufficient altitude. Rather, the Old Testament was the foundation upon which the witness of the church was established. Now, I love that quote for two reasons. One, I love astronomy documentaries, space documentaries, the Apollo. I'm, I geek out yeah. on that stuff. So that was a great image to think of is, is, you know, the whole point of the module, for those that don't know, is to be the fuel that gets the rocket. The, the rocket is the, has the fuel that gets the, the actual module into space. And then once it's there, it drops off back into the earth and either burns up or it's recovered or whatever. And then the, on the lunar landing, the lunar was to get them down there and then they blasted off from that. And so it was done. It was there was no use for it. I think that's a brilliant description of how many Christians see the Old Testament is yeah. because of a misunderstanding of, of Paul and his language about the law uh, because of the Protestant Reformation and some of the excesses of that. The, the Old Testament becomes just, uh, let's, we don't really need to go there anymore. The, yeah. the new has come. And it's a kernel of truth. You know, the book of Hebrews is very big on that in former times it was this, but now this. But yet the Old Testament still remains God-breathed, useful for teaching, correction, reproof, all that. It's still scripture. Um how as a as a primarily a new testament professor biblical studies how do you get christians to see the old testament as more than just the module that's fallen off and we've now we've got what we need well i think we got a taste of it in the in the uh treatment of the leviticus and the offering is that people tend to reason because jesus is the ultimate offering which which indeed he is Therefore, everything with respect to offerings is is no longer of, of any interest. And I just encourage people to think the exact opposite. It's precisely because Jesus is fulfilling these things that studying these things and their intent in their historical religious context helps us understand Jesus better. And um, it's kind of a crazy commentary in Leviticus, but it's it's kind of awesome too. Is uh, Ephraim Radner, who himself grew up in Jewish uh, context, uh, he's got a uh, just a wonderfully relevant and and thoughtful commentary on Leviticus and how it helps us to see w how it contributes to Christian faith. So I think, and and I think as as a rule. Rooting oneself as you do in the realities, social, cultural, economic, religious of the Old Testament world really does bring it to life. And then you can see what the lesson is that's in, intent, intended. And sure, we always refract that through the lens of the Messiah's advent, but it enhances our understanding rather than being, uh, yeah, detritus or, or things we 
have tossed aside. And again, Hebrews can take a negative stance because he's got people who's, again, clear and present danger of actually thinking that these sacrifices are going to um, save them and rejecting Jesus in the process. Mm. Uh, hopefully most Christians aren't in that position and therefore can can benefit from um, studying what the sacrifices symbolize. Well said. Couldn't have said it better. Yeah, it's see the more uh, Christopher Wright, I think, knowing God through the Old Testament, knowing Jesus through the Old Testament, rather, um, touches on that. His quote, he says, "When I read the Old Testament scriptures, I am getting closer to the heartbeat of Jesus than any archaeological artifact could do, because these are the songs he sung, these are the prayers yep. he prayed, these are the depths of wisdom that he, you know." And I think that that's. I don't know why. Well. It's just New Testament's easier in a lot of ways. To, yeah, sure. It's closer to us in time, and it's right. closer to us in culture, at least the Greco-Roman aspects of it, um, than the ancient Near East, which is just this weird esoteric realm that uh, kind of only the crazy people will get venture back into. <laughs> right, and and yet I find because it's more fleshed out, the um, the Old Testament does deal wonderfully with just uh, the bumps and bruises and perplexities of life. I mean, Job is the ultimate example, probably my favorite book of the Bible, but mm. Jacob, he's such a rascal, and you think, how could God use him? And then if you stop and think about it, you say, well, I guess I guess how could God use me? And, and it's a hopeful story, precisely because it um, shows all the problems. Hmm. Uh, the New Testament's shorter, and, and uh, yeah, Peter has his issues, and Paul initially, um, but you really get these extended portraits of people in all their glory and all their shame, and so it can touch our actual lives, not our imagined Christian lives, hmm. pretty pretty, uh, pretty readily. And and again, Christians instinctively know that. They, they know David's story, and they learn from it, and so... So maybe it's not as uh, as bad as we sometimes imagine it to be. I mean, they theologize their way to try and make the Old Testament more obscure, but then it turns out practically they still rely rightly on these stories for spiritual edification. Yeah, yeah. I think we all have a sense of this stuff's important. It's just how they're making the jump from the storybook version of, say, David to the yeah. actual text what we yep. read when we read Samuel and, and Kings and those narratives. Uh, well, then this, this kind of bleeds into our last topic that I wanted to uh, chat with you about, which is getting, getting there, getting from the text to the lived theological experience. Um, that's a jump that's hard to make sometimes. And there's, uh, I posted on Facebook a while back that, uh, an article that was kind of criticized, it, it was showing a shortcoming in the field of systematic theology, which is that the Old Testament is severely, severely neglected among systematic theologians. I think Christianity Today uh, had posted it, that when you survey all of the popular systematic theologies that evangelicals have put out, the number of references to the Old Testament were exponentially fewer than references to the New Testament. And so the gist of the article was, this is a, a, a blind spot within the field of systematic theology. Now, I posted that and made a comment that, for me, this is one of the reasons that I have never really resonated and gravitated towards systematic theology. 
because it has always seemed to have a level of artificiality or, or a level of being removed from the text that I never, it just didn't really resonate with me. Now, a friend or somebody on Facebook took that who this person was studying or did study systematic theology, PhD level, and took that as, oh, well, here's just another slam on systematic theology from the biblical scholar crowd that, you know, constantly we're being told our work is, you know, useless or at best it's a distraction or, or it's not faithful to the text or this and that kind of took it in a direction that I never intended. But looking back, I'm like, okay, I can see that because there is this tension between systematic theology and biblical theology. And then of course, other, you know, philosophical theology, historical theology, but, but those tend to be sort of the two that have the tension and your work, particularly creation and new creation to me was, could not be categorized by either of those labels because there were chapters in it that were straight biblical theology, tracing a theme through scripture. But then there were chapters where you got heavily into the historical interpretations and the church fathers. And then there were chapters where you talked about the philosophical concepts or ideas within creation, within eternity, uh, even thoughts on time and timelessness. So you are a good I think a good person to kind of give us some advice on blending these areas of study, because I think you do that really well. So what are your, what, what it, for the average viewer who doesn't know that there is even a difference between systematic theology and biblical theology, what give us a little primer and then how do you navigate holding those worlds together? Sure. So, um, I mean, one thing I always say is if you got life, you got troubles, and I also like to say there's danger on every side. So people imagine that if they take one position, I'm going to do biblical theology, that suddenly all my troubles are over. I'm going to do systematic theology. Um, and so I'll, I'll equally critique both, right? So, so uh, many people rebel against systematic theology, so-called, um, for, for a couple of reasons, legitimate reasons. One is some bad systematic theology, of which there's much, will, um, on the one hand, act as if they really do have a system which it just explains everything. And um, for that reason, something like the Book of Job is is troubling because the whole point of the Book of Job is, you, Job, you don't understand anything. And Job's a very good and godly and learned and wise man, but God says you just you just don't understand. And so the Bible is happy to humble us and happy to present us with puzzles and, and riddles and lack of explanation such that Jesus himself doesn't know the day he's coming back. Um, he's by his own, by his own statement and he is who God is. So um, the idea that we have a system which answers everything is uh, frankly, completely unbiblical. And it also becomes tedious if you just have these categories and, okay, this is what Bible said. And related to that, then, is is the idea that bad systematic theology is presenting itself as effectively um, a displacement of the scriptures so you don't really need them. You, you have things much more um, clear in this uh, theological treatment. But that's just bad systematic theology. Good systematic theology, which because I don't like system, I tend to call dogmatic theology, mm. same discipline, but I just don't like the word system, um, is, is, is a wonderful resource. And um, 
I have uh, benefited immensely the last 10 years reading uh, the Russian Orthodox theologian, Sergius Bulgakov, who has a lot of crazy stuff to say, but a lot of wonderful stuff to say. Catholic theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, who uh, kind of in the same same boat, um, you know, I'm, I'm Protestant, I don't uh, hold to all the things he would hold to as a Catholic, but he has wonderful theology of beauty in particular, which I think you uh, and many of your listeners would appreciate. Um, and Karl Barth, who has uh, some certainly some personal failings, um, but uh, a wonderfully rich and very biblical articulation of the gospel. And so biblical theology, um, the danger there is people can imagine that what they're doing in contrast to the wicked theologians is just saying the simple, simple Bible truth. And sure, it is the case that as you read Romans 1 or Revelation properly understood or, or any number of other biblical texts, you do get a big overview a synthesis of patterns um, and their significances. Uh, likewise, Hebrews, right? Uh, well, what's the point of the sacrificial system? Well, here's some things that happen, and now it's different. You, you can do biblical theology just as an exegetical endeavor, but the minute you say, well, Matthew says this and Romans says this, therefore, which biblical theology people do all the time, right? But the minute you start to synthesize things, you're making theological moves which have to be accounted for. And theology, I think, to my mind, and philosophy above all, is an exercise in self-awareness of being aware of what you're doing when you're doing it. And uh, this comes out, for example, uh, notoriously in, in discussions about justification. I put the scare quotes up because... We often suppose, so people will say things like, well, is justification forensic or um, uh, whatever the other one is, transformative or, or ethical or, or whatever they say about justification. But, but, but the way the question's phrased, and this is a very fine point, so I want people to listen, listen even more carefully than they have been up to this point, were that possible. Um, they tend to think that Paul must have had a fully thought out theology of justification, this topic called justification, which he, you know, did he have a file folder with all his thoughts on it? And then it sort of leaks out into his letters. And I just question that right from the core. Did he, in fact, think in those categorical terms about a topic called justification? Or is he talking about the reality of our being in the right with God or not? Um, and then he can use the the roots related to being in the right or, or not being in the right in a variety of ways. So, so that's a properly theological question is, is do we have warrant to believe that Paul must have arranged his theological discourse in precisely the way people do 1600 years later or 2000 years later? And you put it that way and say, well, people, oh, uh, you know, I, I guess not. But they still say things like justification is forensic or justification is transformative. As if it must be the case that Paul had that kind of intellectual framework in his head and the evidence is there if we can only uh, trace it back. So um, we, we the geology, they have what you call outcrop, which is um, where the, the fur, so to speak, the, the, the grass and the trees are stripped away. And the nice thing about out, outcrop is that you can see what the bedrock of the land is because there's this little bump up above the surface, so to speak. And we imagine, I think, that the letters 
of Paul are like the outcrop of his theological bedrock, which is recoverable if we just uh, look at what's there and, and uh, mentally dig deep enough. I, I would switch the metaphor and say Paul's letters are like crops that grow so we can feed on them. <laughs> and we're not meant to look below the surface. I mean, you could do it as an intellectual exercise, right? Um, but the, 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 it's a living word that's meant to help us think properly about all sorts of things. Like, what does it mean to be in the right with God? And yes, simple observance of Torah is not going to do that. Um, but thinking carefully in terms of what Paul actually wrote helps keep us from the danger of, as you indicated, for example, saying the law and the gospel are in this inextricable celebrity deathmatch relationship. And only, you know, one, uh, what you call Beyond Thunderdome, Mad Max, two men enter, one man leave. Right. Long gospel, enter the arena, only gospel can leave. Uh, no, no, that's that will help you to misread half the New Testament at a minimum. Um, and it's because we have this this never-ending quest for an ex, an absolute explanation or some kind of bedrock theology, which will just make everything straightforward and, and clear. But but seeing that that's the case requires theological reflection, which is not explicitly on offer in the scripture itself. The scripture just is what it is. It it communicates God's word, and it, and it works. It's effective in that. But what we do with the scripture, we often become uh, unaware of what we're doing, making theological pronouncements as if they were just statements of what, what the Bible says. So, I know we're up against the time, but uh, that's a topic we could discuss at, at length. Yeah, so good, for sure. Good theology is good. Good biblical theology is good. Um, and, but they can both go bad in different ways. Right. And we need them both. Well, one of the resources before you take off that I want to share uh, your new resource, this will help people in not just their biblical understanding, understanding the text exegetically, but also then applying, taking that next step and, and, and specifically for preachers. So uh, the Preacher's Greek Companion, and this is the volume on Philippians, which you wrote. There are other volumes in the series, and and uh, if you want to just give, I know you got to take off. So if you want to tell viewers about this, uh, what it is, what to expect. I've read the first chapter, and it's great. It's actually for anybody that struggles with proficiency in the language. This is made for you, and that's what it is. It's not for the A plus student who kept up their Greek and uses it every week. I mean, hopefully, it could be useful. We we arrange the, uh, in this case, Philippians into preachable chunks and give you some tips on preaching and help you very carefully walk through the Greek text. So it could benefit people who are good at Greek, but it's designed for all those people who took Greek in undergrad or seminary and just despair of ever making use of it. They've forgotten the grammar, they've forgotten this, they've forgotten that. It just is designed to gently rehabilitate your language skills, bring you just step-by-step step through the um, through the text, give just a few insights of how the Greek really helps you, not because it's a magical language, but just pointing out the way Paul will play with words, or use this same root here and there to, to balance a statement or, or whatever it is he's doing. Just a little bit of that and then some preaching tips. And so it's precisely designed for people who are despairing of ever being able to use the Greek or the, the Hebrew and uh, to open up then the whole world of um, resources that are out there because um, I think people open up most commentaries, technical ones, and they go, oh, I just can't understand any of this. 
You read these books and you think, okay, I can get it. And then suddenly you go to um, a proper commentary, a detailed verse-by-verse treatment, and, and you can do so with a lot more confidence. So it's really meant to build your skills, um, give you a little bit of um, critical information from the Greek text, but really trying to open you up to uh, these resources, which you might feel could never be useful to you. But now, now maybe they can. You know, it's going. Well, selfishly, I hope you do one on Revelation, because uh, there's some of the best preaching on Revelation I ever heard was actually in your lectures. It wasn't even sermons. And uh, so I, I, I do recommend this series, especially to preachers that are trying to keep the languages um, this is for me. My Greek is not nearly as good as my Hebrew. So, oh, good. Uh, okay. So, maybe we'll be a, a Yes. View. All right. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I know you have to run, Dr. McDonough. Thank you so much. Um, is there anything else you want to share? If somebody ever wanted to get in touch with you, uh, ask a question about something, or, or you know, may reach out and have you on to discuss this or other works. Yeah, always, um, always. Is there a way? What's the best way to reach for people to reach you? Yeah, so if you look in the, if you just remember that I teach at Gordon Conwell, my uh, email, smcdonoughgcts.edu, is is on there. So you don't even have to remember it. Just find me via Gordon Conwell and uh, happy to get the email. Perfect, perfect. Well, I'll put all that up and thank you so much. I've been looking forward to having you on here in the dojo for a while. So thanks for making it happen. I know you got to go get to some meetings. So I really appreciate your time. So I hope you enjoyed that discussion. It's so cool to get to sit down and talk to somebody who has been so formative in my own theological education, but who I haven't seen face to face in 20 years now. Thank you so much, Dr. McDonough, for coming on. I'm going to put a number of links in the description below to resources that will help you better understand Revelation, as well as uh, some of Dr. McDonough's other books that you may want to take a look at. As always, thank you for watching Disciple Dojo. We appreciate your support. And if you enjoyed this discussion, share it with other Bible nerds you know who might enjoy it as well. We'll see you next time back here at Disciple Dojo.